idea is that there just needs to be a foothold. You need to keep chipping away at this mega corporation and do it wherever you can and do it as publicly as possible in order to try and break through at some point uh, in their front in order to give the workers of this mega corporation uh, a little bit of power within their system or a little bit of a, a step up. Uber wants an immediate response time and a consumer pulls the app out. The car is with them in 90 seconds and they think, isn't technology marvelous? But it's not, it's labor exploitation. It's excess labor hanging around waiting for that work that made that possible. I, th I think even just the, the changes I've observed, just in the folks that I've known for the past four or five months now, walk a little taller, like, hmm puff the chest out a little bit like I think they understand how important their work is and I think that might be something that is new for some folks who maybe didn't feel that way before because they were just stuck dealing with regular life and kids and family and dealing with their husband's job. They wanted job security, they wanted dignity, they wanted things that workers take for granted today and they won those things as a result of the sit-down strike. We're seeing today that through lack of meaning in our work, that and, and through just the sheer struggle of, of survival and existence, that people do want to escape and unplug and disconnect from the communities and from the families around them. It's not like I'm a great baseball player myself, but suddenly I found myself as the coach of this team, with Dan playing first base, Dino Stamatopoulos, alternating pitching with my girlfriend at the time, now wife. Just a, just a ragtag collection of animators and assistants and writers. And it was a blast. And, it, and I guess it was, for me, it was a way to elevate myself out of just being seen as the intern. Suddenly I was coach. Welcome to Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, where we present some highlights from a few of our more than 100 shows here on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. And if this week's eight excerpts just aren't enough, check out laborradionetwork.org for even more content. As always, we feature a range of different topics, but of course, Amazon is going to be one of them. This week, it's tackled by Labor Radio KBOO. Michael and Elliot discuss the NLRB recommendation that the Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama should hold a new election after finding that Amazon violated workers' rights and engaged in misconduct. Next, we travel across the pond to Union News, where we hear about the latest UK Supreme Court ruling on Uber drivers' employment rights and how it's not the end of the ACDU's fight against the rideshare company. Back in Alabama, the Working People podcast talks with labor journalist Kim Kelly, who's been covering the Warrior Met coal strike in Brooklyn, where 1,100 members have been out on strike for over five months. Kelly discusses the current status of the coal workers and her own career in journalism. In the middle of our show, we have a quick teaser from the San Francisco Mine Troops' upcoming episode of Tales of Resistance called Hobos in Space. As the title indicates, you don't want to miss it. Moving on to some history, folks at Tales from the Ruther Library podcast speak with author Dr. Edward McQuellen, whose new book explores the fascinating story of the Flint sit-down strike and its lessons for the modern labor movement. Next, from the Vatican to the Metaverse, Empathy Media Lab's Faith and Labor podcast touches on Pope John Paul II's encyclical Laborum Exorcisms, or Through Work, and how it relates to work in the past, present, and future. And last but certainly not least is the third and Fairfax podcast, which features writer Michael Waldron, known for the film Doctor Strange, 
the adult cartoon Rick and Morty, and most recently, the newest Marvel show, Loki. Waldron talks about his unexpected origins as a writer, spoiler alert, it's playing softball, and how it resembles his current work. This is Mel Smith with the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, and here's our show. Welcome to Labor Radio. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gillen. Thank you so much for joining us. So today, for the meat of our show, we'd like to touch on a topic that we discussed pretty intensely a couple months ago, back in April, and that is the Amazon Union Drive that took place in Bessemer, Alabama. Now, as uh, if you're paying attention to that, or if you listen to this show, you'll know that was unfortunately uh, defeated. The, uh, the workers of that facility voted it down. But there were a number of things that were questionable about how that uh, vote was carried out and some of the intimidation tactics that Amazon used to dissuade workers from voting for the union. And at the time, we we on this show discussed the fact that, that was, although it was successfully or ultimately unsuccessful, it was in fact an opening salvo in a long battle to unionize Amazon workers and to change the culture of low-wage work that um, exists in this country. And there would, we predicted that there would be much more to come on that front, and it appears that we were correct about that, because after all the votes were tallied in April and the union was ultimately defeated, the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Workers Union, or the RWDSU, filed nearly two dozen formal objections with the National Labor Relations Board, or the NLRB. Those objections allege that Amazon's conduct in the lead-up to and during the election, quote, created an atmosphere of confusion coercion and or fear of reprisals, which they believed interfered with their employees' freedom of choice within the election process. And those objections called for the NLRB to set the election results aside and to call for a new election. Kirsten Myers, the the NLRB official who came out with this ruling, says that although there is no credible evidence that anyone aside from USPS workers, the Postal Service workers, accessed the outgoing mail from that private mailbox, Myers concluded that, however, even absent of evidence that the employer had access to the mailbox, there was sufficient evidence that employees reasonably believed their activities were being tracked. And therefore, even yeah, as I said, even though there may not have been any foul play involved, yeah. the simple fact that it was made to, to appear to workers as if they were going to be seen by their, it was going to be tallied by their, their employers and their supervisors would know. That was enough to skew the results of the election so much that the results should be thrown out. Um, now, there are other things that, that the NLRB also noted as being against their regulations and in violation of the labor rights of these workers, specifically that they argued that Amazon violated the NLR, the National Labor Relations Act rules by polling employees about support for the union by simply distributing vote no pins and car tags in front of supervisors and managers. So again, another uh, situation where they may not have they have plausible deniability because all they were doing was just panning out anti-union you know literature and like little you know, tchotchkes. But by doing so in front of workers, but the supervisors and managers of these workers, it is implied that is endorsed by their managers and that the managers. And supervisors are in fact watching them and and will know who exactly. And so it is the whole thing is just basically uh, one large and multi-tiered example of a company using its unbelievable power and resources and reach into the workers' lives to 
scare them away from doing something that is ultimately in their best interest yeah. to even the playing field a bit. Yeah, and obviously, like this, this decision will have to get approved above to the next round, like of the NLRB. Yeah. But I, I do think an important thing to call out here is that at this point, the kind of cat is out of the bag. Yeah. And even if they rerun the election and don't utilize some of the tactics that have been called out, there's already a, a, a vibe and a basically a intimidation factor that is involved from right. the previous one. And so I'm not really sure you can put that back in the bottle. Exactly. And yeah, as you're saying, there's a good chance that if this is in fact enforced and the results of the election are thrown out and the new election is held, there's a good chance that it will likely go a similar way. But the idea is that this is just the first, like, and so whether or not this vote gets overturned and a new election happens and whether or not the results go in favor of the union it is still showing that it is not that, that there is someone standing on the side of the of workers the NLRB is supporting the workers and it shows that it is possible to continue pushing against these things and that it's not inevitable that the company is always going and so it it should in some way provide hope for working people everywhere thank you so much for listening to labor radio i am michael cathcart and i'm ellie gilland have a great night Welcome to a special episode of Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and that was James Farrer, General Secretary of the ADCU, the App Drivers and Couriers Union, on the Supreme Court ruling that famously established that Uber drivers are workers and not self employed. I chat with James about all this and much more. James Farrer, General Secretary of the App Drivers and Couriers Union, ADCU, you are very welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, when the GMB announced its recognition deal, ADCU put out a, a statement that basically said, well, this is good. Anything that increases the union footprint in Uber is good. But, and the but was that in ADCU's view, there were, I think you called them significant obstacles that prevented you seeking a similar sort of agreement. Now, what are those obstacles? What's at the center of the dispute with Uber is these contractual arrangements where Uber insists that the driver and the passenger are contracted together and Uber simply acts as an agent in the cloud. Uber's gone to the high court to get a declaration there that this contract model is not in violation of transport regulations. What they're trying to do there is to de-link their worker rights obligations with their transport license obligations, which I think is dangerous when it comes to transport for London, the mayor of London. And secondly, what they're also trying to do is sidestep the VAT liability that it said itself, it told it the stock market in the US in the filings there, that if it lost the Supreme Court uh, ruling, which it did, it expected it would be on the hook for VAT in Britain. Uh, and the estimates are it owes about two and a half billion pounds. So while Uber is saying that it's a reformed character, its actions suggest something else. So, so let me make sure I've, I've understood this correctly, that the Supreme Court ruling was not ultimate and final because it depends on supporting rulings or actions to make to clarify the role of working time in, in the whole sale terms and conditions. There's no agreement on working time with Uber. But secondly, Uber on the one hand is saying, we're just neutral, we're just a, we're a platform. But on the other hand, they're trying to dodge VAT payments and they're trying to set themselves outside the whole regulatory arrangement that protects both providers and consumers of transport. That's right. So the, so the need for continuing organising and unionisation is clear. What's the ADCU's approach to organising and building the membership? Well, firstly, I don't agree that there's anything particularly different about working for an app 
let's look at it from a legal perspective. If you read every one of the rulings that were made against Uber, the bench was never confused or befuddled about the, the changing paradigm of app work. The work is exactly the same. The means of distribution is a little different, but that's all. But in terms of our organizing, and this is where this is the key thing. There's nothing about the app distribution model that would have changed the organizing model because the workers are doing the exact same job that they did 20 years ago. If you are addressing the needs of the workers and you're connected to those workers, then organizing is not a problem. <laughs> Proximity yeah. is not a problem. Uh, the problem comes if you're, not, if you're not connected to these workers, you're not addressing their needs and issues. Uh, then you're not going to be able to organize in that workforce. It's as simple as that. If we look ahead, what's the kind of strategic goals that you're, you're aiming at for, for the next kind of 18 months, two years or so? We're, the working time is really a serious issue because what's at the heart of the gig economy problem is this wage theft around working time and this standby time in particular that I'm, I'm hooked onto a platform. I should get paid for the time that I'm waiting. If we do not pay for that waiting time, then all we're doing is encouraging platforms to continue to overstock and oversupply on that platform. And that has an inverse effect. It creates positive network effects for Uber because Uber wants an immediate response time. A consumer pulls the app out, a car is with them in 90 seconds, and they think, isn't technology marvelous? But it's not. It's labor exploitation. It's excess labor hanging around waiting for that work that made that possible. How the effect of that for drivers is yield dilution, price dilution yeah. over time. Because what Uber justifies price cuts by saying, listen, you'll earn more money. If your wheels ain't turning, you ain't earning, is what they yeah. used to say. It's to the bottom for drivers, but it also causes congestion, uh, poor air quality, and so on. And yeah. so until we have a point where either we have a cap on numbers by cities, and there's very little appetite either by national government or local authorities to do that, or these platforms start paying for this time, then we're going to have this problem of oversupply, which is which leads to poverty and pollution. James, a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for, for, for being so candid and expressive and, and giving a real alternative or, or companion insight into the murky world of Uber. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to say a big thank you to James Farrer for giving up his time to join us. A big thank you to you for giving up your time uh, to join us. Take care, stay safe. And I'll see you next time on Union Jews. Hello, <laughs> my name's Kim Kelly. I'm a bunch of things, but I suppose for our purposes here, I'm a uh, independent journalist, specifically a labor reporter, currently based in Philadelphia. And I'm working on my first book, which is called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, which comes out next April. Currently writing it. How do they see that? How do they see that transformation? Like how I guess what I'm what I'm trying to what I'm trying to understand is how they conceptualize this change in themselves and their communities through the strike with regard to with regard to gender di dynamics, with regard to community, with regard to collectivism, maybe politics, just all, anything that you can think of that they conceptualize themselves as, as changing or their communities is changing. And, and how does that track with what you're seeing from the outside? I guess I'm asking you to give me what they would say and then how, what your response to that is about the transformation. If that makes sense, I don't know. Some things I can pick out at the very least 
like I think there's so one thing they'll always tell you when you ask how it's going or what things are like or what they're dealing with is that to be a coal miner's wife, you have to be tough. To be a coal miner's daughter or partner or grandparent, like just to be a woman in that community and not be working as a coal miner, to be part of that structure, you have to be tough. You have to be, you have to train yourself to deal with the stress and the worry of your guy coming home and being hurt or not coming home at all. This was a mine that 20 years ago, there was a massive explosion. 13 miners were killed. Those are 13 families that didn't see their dad or their husband or their brother that night. That's something that's always lurking in the back of their minds. Some of the women told me about, one thing that really comes up is how much things changed after Warrior Met came in. They tell me, God, they broke my heart. Like one woman told me about how she was really sick and she was in the hospital and her husband couldn't even come visit her because he didn't have any time off left. I heard about a woman who was having a miscarriage and her husband was underground and they you know, couldn't get a hold of him for three hours. Mm. I heard about a woman whose child had a skull fracture and they should go to the hospital alone because they couldn't reach the, her husband. He couldn't take work off like this kind of emotional darkness and heaviness that these women carry. I think that's something they've been dealing with since they became part of that life. But now that they have this chance to fight back against those forces that are forcing that burden upon them, like they sparkle. Like I think a lot of women are realizing how tough they are and how powerful and capable they are because a lot of them hadn't had to work outside the home in a while. And now they're hustling multiple nights a week. Now getting this food pantry figured out, buying stuff, dealing with local businesses, coordinating. I, th- I think even just the, the changes I've observed just in the folks that I've known for the past four or five months now, walk a little taller, like hmm. puff the chest out a little bit. Like I think they understand how important their work is. And I think that might be something that is new for some folks who maybe didn't feel that way before because they were just stuck dealing with regular life and kids and family waiting and dealing with their husband's job. Like this gave them a chance to explore other parts of themselves and their capabilities. And in terms of gender and politics and such, some of the conversations I've had have been really interesting, specifically in the political sense, because I didn't, I would not have expected to be at a a purple onion and Hoover the other night talking about socialism with a bunch of coal miners wives and about how socialism and communism are different vibes and how tankies are the worst. And there is, I think there's very much an understanding of who's been showing up for them and who hasn't. And even those who are, and some of the women who are like, would identify themselves as right wing or whatever, they named up the DSA and are like appreciative of what folks who are involved in socialism or socialist politics have to say. I think there's a lot more open-mindedness than they, than people you know, than any of them get any credit for. The Young Communist League showed up to sing at the end of their rally in New York, and a couple of the miners went up there and took their flyers and had a nice chat with them. I know they're not interested in communism. Yeah, I know they're not interested in communism, but they went up there and they they talked to them. And that's, I wouldn't say that the majority of the miners would have done that. Right, right. It's probably good. It's probably good those kids showed up a little late, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) Like, yeah, you and I know. (laughs) But I think there's so much potential for, I don't know, for perspectives to shift and for people Mm -hmm. to grow and evolve a little bit. Because 
I think when you're forced to deal with such a huge disruption and to struggle so hard to make ends meet while you're fighting this massive invisible enemy, that's going to change someone. And I'm really interested to see after they win, how they feel it's changed them. I think that'll be my big follow-up interview. Who are you now? Who were you then? And who are you now? Next time on Tales of the Resistance, a journey into the future. The starship Celestial Empowerment holds the greatest hopes for humanity fleeing a dying planet. But will they leave behind the problems of Earth? Tune in for... Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Motown, and I'm talking about Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host. Edward McClelland is an historian and journalist born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, who has been published in the Washington Post, New York Times, and others, and has written many of books, including Young Mr. Obama, The Third Coast, and Nothing But Blue Sky. So I was really glad to talk, get a chance to talk to him about his latest book, um, which is about the Flint sit-down strike. Hi, Ted. How are you doing? So glad that you could join our podcast. Glad to be back with the Ruther. I spent a lot of time there when I was researching Midnight in Vehicle City. That's right. Welcome back to the family of the Ruther Library. Absolutely. Now, I, your book is great. I loved reading it. It was a fun read. I mean, your timing is, is perfect to have this book out, especially at this moment in labor history and current labor events. So why don't we set up the whole stage for some people who are not familiar with the sit-down strike, or just to remind themselves, like, who were involved, what were the players, and, and how did the city of Flint fit into this picture? The UAW had just broken away from the American Federation of Labor and joined with the new Congress of Industrial Organizations. It was led by John L. Lewis, and they had new leadership. They had more, more militant leadership, and they decided they wanted to strike General Motors. There had been some unsuccessful strikes at General Motors in Flint in the years before. The Wagner Act had just been passed, guaranteeing workers the right to bargain collectively. And they were hoping that Michigan was going to elect a New Deal governor and Frank Murphy, which Michigan did. And they decided to focus on Flint and in particular on Fisher Body Number 1 because that contained dyes that were used to, to stamp out bodies for cars that were built throughout the GM universe around the country. They could shut down Flint, they could shut down Fisher One, they could shut down the the whole company. And Murphy Murphy was elect Murphy's elected in November. And so they say, let's just have something after he's inaugurated. After the new year, events overtook them because there were rumors that the company was going to ship dyes for, to Grand Rapids on right. December 30th. So they had to act. They had to act then. And that's when they that's when they took over the plant. So what what were surprises did you take when you were researching this book? I guess just how bad and how dangerous the, the working conditions were. It was never, the strike wasn't about money. There was no job security there. There weren't a lot of workers over 40 because they just couldn't keep up with the, the speed up. They mm -hmm. talked about the speed up when they'd start at 40 cars an hour and they were trying to make quota. They'd crank it up to 60 cars an hour and the workers mm -hmm. couldn't keep up and the line broke down because it wasn't engineered to, to run that fast. It was dangerous. I talked about a worker who put his eye out and took him years to get any money from the state is compensation because there was no 
workman's compensation. There was no health insurance. They wanted job security. They wanted dignity. They wanted things that workers take for granted today. And they won those things as a result of the sit-down strike. After that, there were time studies as to how fast the line should run. And layoffs were based on seniority. While you're talking about this factory work, which is hazardous, it raises the issue that during this pandemic, again, that veil was kind of pushed away and we saw what was going on in right. the packing houses. We saw what was going on in Amazon. You know, we knew that there were ambulances waiting outside in the summer times, but they couldn't take you know bathroom breaks in the packing house. They were getting COVID. And so what have we learned from this, man? It was just interesting to me how similar the concerns of the workers you know, who wanted to form a union at Amazon were to the sit-down strikers. They wanted more job security. They wanted more humane pace of work. They want to more say in the workplace. And that failed. And it's there's just been an interesting dynamic and a, that a guy and a guy named Harold Meyerson wrote something about it is that the labor movement has just become more of a white collar movement lately. And his theory, and I think it's true, is that you know the less replaceable workers are, the more confident they feel in being able to form a union. People who really don't have a lot of job skills and have these tough jobs, they're worried that if they form a union, the company will just Know, move somewhere else or pull the rug out from under them. And I think that explains why the the effort at Amazon failed and why they're failing to get into some of these really low-wage industries. Ted, I really appreciate you being on our podcast. Thanks for having me. I love it. Thanks a lot. And everybody got to buy this book. This is a lovely book. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Welcome to Faith and Labor, which is a podcast video series exploring the history of Catholic social teachings and how it can be used to bridge divisions and guide humanity to solve the great challenges facing the working class. Hosted by John Andrzejczyk of Labor Lines and myself, Evan Papp of Empathy Media Lab, we discuss history, scripture, encyclicals, current events, and how faith and love is needed to strengthen solidarity and heal a world in disarray. For episode four today, we will discuss Laborum Exorcens, which means through work, and is an encyclical written by Pope John Paul II in 1981 on human work. John, long time, how are you doing? Yeah, long time, Evan. It's good to see you through work, which is sums it up because in this encyclical, as in Catholic teaching, through work, humanity is to be improved. This encyclical, when you boil it down, again, speaks of, he repeatedly speaks of man is the object of work. He's not the subject of work. Humanity is work. Francis speaks of this, our current Pope speaks of this because work is the most common form of cooperation humanity will ever know, has and always will be. Or in, in the parlance of the left, perhaps it is the most uh, popular of the popular fronts. Everyone goes to work. Yeah, and I find this, the historical tension between what's going on in the 1980s between the West and the Soviet Union or the NATO alliance in the Soviet Union. And he comes right out and he's talking about how labor takes precedence over capital, which right. Lincoln used and Marx obviously built 
a lot of his ideology based on this understanding. But I think it's very clear capital has no value when it's removed from human intention and human use. And labor takes precedence over capital just means people are more important than the things. So he's, he's making these pronouncements in the West while he's also trying to help people in the East find the spirituality of Catholicism while also critiquing the capitalism of the West under Reagan and Thatcher at the very beginning of what is going to be unleashed for the last 40 years as known as this neoliberal exploitative model that's really ran its course to a proto-fascist kind of uh, threat. So I do want to talk a little bit about some cultural things called the metaverse and just this dystopian idea on this thing that Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook proclaimed Facebook is going to become a metaverse company and Facebook is going to pivot from being a website that is accessed through phones and laptops to a next generation computing platform where the focus is on users' presence and is accessed through VR via Facebook's Oculus headset. And five years from now, we'll effectively transition from people seeing us as primarily being a social media company to being a metaverse company. We're seeing today that through lack of meaning in our work that, and, and through just the sheer struggle of, of survival and existence, that people do want to escape and unplug and disconnect from the communities and from the families around them. A book came out, Ready Player, that builds on this concept of the metaverse. And that book was set in this dystopian future where desperate people are driven to escape their unpleasant lives into a vast virtual environment. It is insinuated that either this oasis called as that metaverse is so popular because the world is so bad or the world is so bad because the oasis is so popular. So even by going into the metaverse, you're no longer caring about what you need to do in this world now today and help your fellow humans. So then that re reduces the attention, for instance, if you're a citizen in making sure the government does what needs to happen so that everyone is fed and everyone is housed because you're always just online all the time entertainment and things like that. And as we talk about this idea of work is essential to what it means to be human, there's going to be this inherent tension as more and more people are drawn into this online virtual reality. I think it's spot on with John Paul in the 80s. He called out that the hyper individuality of the Western model of the atomization society was more perilous to humanity than the Soviet Union. Yeah. And, and that's how many years ago, right, that it's that people isolate themselves in, in by improving, working towards moving from toil to work. I really appreciate engaging with you, John, and I'm glad we're able to get back online and uh, keep moving forward with this project. I'm honored, Evan. Thank you for your end. I couldn't do it, obviously. So God bless you. Thanks, John. Amen, brother. Yeah, God bless. Bye now. the podcast of the Writers Guild of America West. I'm your host today, Brian Gary, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Michael Waldron, 
Hello, Michael. Hi. Michael has had quite a couple of years. He's got uh, Loki, the series on Disney+. Plus. He's got an upcoming series uh, called Heels. It's going to be on Stars. He's part of the, he's writing the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. There's a top secret Star Wars project in the works. And also in the background is Rick and Morty. And uh, also in case anybody has any questions whatsoever about it, Michael is an avid professional wrestler. So before we get into any of these uh, specific projects, I'd like to start somewhere else. Once upon a time, on a softball diamond in Burbank. And in good comic book fashion, we're going to go a little bit of part of your lore, your origin story. So you're working for the team of Rick and Morty. You're over there as an assistant and you come up with an idea and it ends up onto a softball field. But walk us through that story and how you intersected with all these. Yeah, I guess all writing origin stories, it, it, it starts with being bad at sports and we've put, put putting together a terrible sports team. We, I was working as an intern on Rick and Morty on the very first season and just trying to figure out how to get noticed by Dan Harmon, truthfully, because I was a huge fan, but I was just the intern putting stickers on books and doing coverage and stuff. And honestly, I, I I don't know what why it popped into my head. I'm a baseball fan, and I, one day Dan passed me, passed my cubicle, and I just said, hey, Dan, we, we should have a company softball team. And he kind of, kind of laughed at me. He was like, if you start it, I'll play. And I, I called his bluff. And so I went and signed us up in the Burbank Rec League and became the coach of our softball team and and of these we were, bad news bears, we were, we made the bad news bears look like the the good news bears. I don't know the, <laughs> the Icelandic hockey team and Mighty Ducks too. We were really good, or we were really bad. I'm. It's not like I'm a great baseball player myself, but suddenly I found myself as the coach of this team with Dan playing first base, Dino Stamatopoulos alternating pitching with my girlfriend at the time, now wife. Just a, just a ragtag collection of animators and assistants and writers. And it was a blast. And, it, and I guess it was, for me, it was a way to elevate myself out of just being seen as the intern. Suddenly I was coach and I had to write I had to write the softball emails that, that let everybody know when we were having a practice or a game or anything. So I, I could deviously incept Dan and Dino into thinking I was a good writer with these different softball emails that I put a lot of work into. And, and we just, we became friends over, over the course of that. And we did actually win a game. Finally, we, I think we beat like a video game company and it, it was like, we'd won the world series. We charged the mound and everything. And that night, Dan had been, he had been hired, just been hired back onto community season five. And that night he offered me the job as the writer's PA to come with him onto community. And that, that was, I was off to the races from there. Some of the major differences between the various lanes in which a writer can find themselves in, in Hollywood. Screenwriting is a fairly solitary experience. Television has this level of camaraderie and teamwork. What did being on the league outside of the writer's room with these writers tell you about that type of interaction that you needed to either foster or build to help you back inside the writer's room or to get into the writer's room? 
think it's probably at that point in your career where you're young and nervous and, and just want to get noticed. It, it, it was just that served as my demystification. It's an opportunity to remember that the people you look up to are, are just people, just talented people that have worked hard to, to get where they're at. And that was a good proving ground to to make jokes to, to professional joke writers and bomb and, but also make those guys laugh and build some confidence just in your own ability to hang, you know, hang in the big leagues with these guys. So Michael, want to thank you very much for joining us today on third and Fairfax. Thanks for having me. That'll be it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a show where we cobble together highlights from the Labor Radio Podcast Network stash of over 100 shows that spans across many topics and continents. If you're interested in more labor-related podcasts, and we hope that you are, check out our website at laborradionetwork.org or use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at laborradionet. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon, Chris Garlock, and myself, produced by Chris, and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips. For the first but not the last time, this is Mel Smith for Labor Radio Podcast Weekly.